Welcome to episode four of the Inspired Energy podcast. Today, I'm catching up with Rob Field, ex-Top Gun instructor for the US Navy and flight leader for the Blue Angels. Rob's passion for participating in high-performance activities and building elite teams began a really early age where he excelled in alpine ski racing and soccer. He won a number of individual and team accolades along the way through regional and state competitions. His Navy career is also notable for his rapid rise through the ranks and his innovative spirit. Rob Ice Field kept his career by being hand-selected to lead the personal staff of three and four-star generals in command at the highest levels of the military. This included serving as an EO in the Pentagon, NORAD and NORTHCOM. I love catching up with Rob and just talking about so many of his insights and what he shares through his organisation in consulting called CatShot. He's the president of CatShot, which started about 10 years ago, and he partners with organisations to help them build high-performance cultures and strategies where individuals perform at their maximum potential. Today, as we discussed, he shares some of those tips and insights around high-motivated organisations, high-innovative organisations, and high-reliability organisations where they come together in what he calls infectious enthusiasm. I love the quote that he shared in our conversation about culture first and then everything else. He also talked about the power of a no-rank debrief in the pursuit of creating a high-performance culture and how important that is in the work that he's done and where he's worked, but also in any organisation where there's a safe space where people are constructively challenging each other and building a culture of honesty and trust. He also talks briefly about his model, the performance triad, and why a noble calling is the highest form of passion. And lastly, I also loved his link to how important it is that the alignment of your personal why is linked and aligned to the organization's why of where you work. So sit back, enjoy this conversation with Rob Icefield, ex-Top Gun pilot. Okay, everyone, welcome. This is Murray Guest. I'm here with Rob Field for episode four of the Inspired Energy podcast. Welcome, Rob. Welcome. Thanks. Thanks, Rob. Great to have you here. Uh, Rob and I have been working together on and off for six months. Been talking to Rob, uh, and I'm amazed and privileged to get to spend time with Rob. I think he's an uh, awesome leader and looking forward to this chat with him today. Rob, um, Tell us a bit about yourself, where are you from, what have you done in the past? Yeah, so the reason Murray and I got together is I've been working in high performance activities most of my life. Uh, in, I'm from the United States, grew up south of Buffalo, New York in a place called Orchard Park, uh, involved in soccer, ski racing, alpine ski racing as a youngster, went through college as an engineer and joined the U.S. Navy eventually after a short stint in uh, industry, working in the aero def defense industry, and uh, became a Navy fighter pilot. Uh, and the rest is history. Uh, my background in that regard, which is one of the reasons I'm here, is uh, flew F-18s, one of the first uh, F-18 pilots right out of the training command was a Top Gun student, then a Top Gun instructor, not once but twice, uh, was a commanding officer of a squadron, did some combat in Iraq, uh, got selected to be the boss, what they call is the flight leader and uh, commanding officer of the U.S. Navy Flight Demonstration Squadron, otherwise known as the Blue Angels, it's similar to the roulettes, I believe, here in uh, Australia. Yep. And did that for a couple of years, uh, became an air wing commander. So the air wing commander owns all the squadrons on a ship. So nine squadrons, uh, about 70, in my case, about 75 airplanes. Uh, so did that for a while. And then eventually after 20 some years, they got me out of the cockpit, did a couple tours, uh, one tour in the Pentagon and then a tour out at NORAD Northcom working directly for a four-star general in that case. So uh, that's my military career. But since then I started a company called CatShot we do, uh, we essentially exist to win. Uh, that's what uh, what we're all about. And we like to 
to uh, join up and partner with companies that are interested in uh, taking a look at themselves, changing their paradigm, working outside the box to improve their performance. Uh, we pride ourselves in, in using the best practices of highly motivated organizations, highly innovative organizations, uh, and highly reliable organizations try to combine those three into a very top performing organization. And we also look at the, the personal side of things as well. So that's a little bit about my background and my journey uh, to be here with Murray today. Wow, I mean, and such a um, amazing journey. You've had 27 years in the Navy. And how long have you been in business for now with CatShot? Uh, nine years. Nine years, okay. Um, do you miss the Navy? I do. Yeah. yeah. Which parts? Uh, all of it. Uh, for me, the Navy was a perfect blend of doing something larger than yourself uh, and also getting to do what is really my hobby, and that's uh, flying airplanes and, and very high-performance airplanes uh, at that, so, uh, and, leading, and leading men and women. So. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, when you look back on that career, uh, do you think about those moments of being out in the cockpit by yourself as the standout or is there something about leading the team or, or something else as the bits that stand out to you the most most memorable yeah I, I uh, there's different aspects to to hindsight I think that uh, a lot of great memories but probably the most important piece that I that I look back at that gives me a sense of fulfillment, and that is really doing something larger than yourself and being part of that. And then in my case, fortunately, to have been a Blue Angel flight lead, uh, Top Gun instructor a couple times, and then leading men and women in combat, it's, it's the high performance piece of it. That's part of my DNA, I think. Uh, I enjoy that, and being able to, to combine all those elements together uh, is, is, is the piece that I've tried to bring now to what I do uh, outside the military and uh, get other people to have that same sense of satisfaction and fulfillment in their lives as well. So in private organizations, that sense of purpose, that sense of even legacy beyond what they're doing day to day, do you think that's harder in private organizations compared to being in the military? Uh, in some ways, yes. It depends on the organization, and that, I believe, is really one of the things that, that uh, as I look back uh, and I was trying to help people and organizations figure out how to perform at really high levels, and uh, as Murray knows, I, I talk about a performance triad. Part of that triad is this passion piece, and really the, the, it's, it's the fuel that, that drives people to do really great things, and, and uh, it's a required element. And having a noble calling as your passion is really the best. And I think given the mission of the military, it's a given. And people understand that you're doing something for your country and it's a, it's a higher order. Uh, so it's very easy to attach yourself to that noble calling. And that's one of the things that you miss when you leave. So when you talk about how does that relate in regards to a civilian organization, I think the key is it can be there. You have to work hard to identify it and think hard of what it is, whether you're making widgets or you're doing software, um, you're in the service industry, how does what you do relate to a higher calling? And you, once you think that through and, and almost reverse engineer it, if you will, then then you can get that same sense of fulfillment and satisfaction. And, and, and that's one of the key things that we do at Catch Out is, is try to get people to think in those terms about what they do. Um, and, and we can go into more on that later, but vision statements and mission statements often fall short in that regard. Yeah, and it, yeah. you read, really need to be thinking uh, beyond that at a higher level to start. And then you can back your way into those. So I think sometimes what happens is the vision or the mission statements at a very high level for uh, what the company is trying to achieve, but I love how when you talk about the noble calling, it's it's in that intrinsic motivation internally, isn't it? Yes. And how that for each person in a um, civilian organisation uh, links and aligns with the vision, but it's their personal calling, isn't it? It is, and that's really the the key is developing 
a sense of this noble calling within the organization that everybody can link to for their own personal noble calling. Uh, and I like to look at it almost from, you know, what's your life worth when you're uh, at the end of your life and you look back on it in hindsight, you know, did I achieve something that has affected the world in a positive way? It doesn't have to be big, but if you can find that in your job, if you will, or your, your profession, then, then you're winning. That's a good start. Whose role is it, do you think, in organizations to help people develop that noble calling? I guess a bit of a leading question, does it just sit with leaders or is there something else around the culture to get that noble calling to evolve out? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think it's all the above. It, everybody has to be involved in it. And I think it also depends got maybe a noble calling for the overall organization. You may have one that's a subset of that for the division you're in, and then you've got one for your uh, person, you know, yourself, uh, but they're all somehow linked together. And then you can see what you're doing day to day, how that uh, achieves not only the goals for the organization and their noble calling, but also one for yourself. And so, Yes, it's everybody's responsibility and the process that you go through to, to develop that um, is key. And you, we talked just briefly about vision and mission statements and quite often those fall short because they're not uh, broad enough. They're not at a, uh, in a, you know, a Simon Sinek, if you're familiar with him, yeah, he talks yeah. about uh, start with why. That's, mm -hmm. a, that's a great uh, way to think about it. You know, why are we doing what we're doing? you can answer that question, then uh, uh, then you're on your way. And by the way, you're you may not always get a noble calling that fits everybody in your organization, and, and that's a good thing too, because you need to know that, and, and uh, you will attract the ones that you have a, a similar viewpoint, and, and uh, the other people will naturally attract. So. Yeah, and I guess that's the, the tough conversations sometimes that go with that around, if we don't have an alignment around that calling or that purpose, um, the, that tough conversation about is this the right place for you maybe right um, so when you talk about the performance triad we've got passion noble calling what's that third element well this passion and noble calling uh, are one really um, and then there's free will uh, free will think of it as innovation uh, is part of that being able to you know there's a lot of aspects into it and then the, the third one is focus. But uh, back to free will. Free will is the ability to um, say something, do something, and not have negative repercussions from doing that. And, and so that's critical in a, again, a highly motivated, highly innovated, and highly reliable organization. You've got to have that innovation. And I'm, we're not talking innovation strictly in terms of creating some new piece of software or some new widget. We're talking about everything from just how uh, admin is done in the office or how the desks are arranged. We're always in this continuous improvement mode and how can we do things better? So so that's important. Like, like a growth mindset that everyone thinks that there's, um, uh, or embraces the concept there's a better way to do things. That there's always room to improve, that we're not even a bit complacent. Like, it's like, uh, whether it's the smallest task or a support task like admin or something, how can we do this a little bit better? Right. Yeah, okay. Yep. Um, and then focus. Yeah, focus is really that key that um, has some of the elements or all the elements of a highly reliable organization. So mindfulness and briefing, uh, debriefing, being able to visualize what you're about to do, be, and it really helps with the uh, execution Focus is also important in doing the basics correct uh, from the very beginning. So quite often we see organizations that want to operate at a very high level, but they don't get the basics down right. So they're, they're never as efficient at what they're doing as they could be. So um, that's the, the high reliability piece. And then thinking about those contingency and crisis action plans that you should have, emergency uh, procedures, always um, going through this churn and so the key action items here are how well do you brief how do you execute and how do you debrief and those are some things that we talk about and and uh, really 
put a lot of emphasis on. And if anything that we talk about today that we see is the, that you, if you ask me what the biggest, um, not failure necessarily, but the, the weakest point in, in many organizations culture, it's the culture of briefing and debriefing. It, they lack both of them. They're not sure how to do it. And we go into great detail on how it's done with these organizations that operate in extreme environments and they they have to do extreme things and they don't have a chance to, to not get it right. They have to do it right each time. And so there's a lot to learn from there that can apply in any organization. I wonder about the organizations where the work they're doing doesn't have the consequences or the um, seriousness when things go wrong, like in the Navy or the military or a, um, a high-risk organization. So then they don't apply the robustness to the brief and the debrief because it's like, oh, it doesn't matter. And yet, if they did apply that same robustness to it and that same um, structure in the process, they would then get to work towards that high performance, wouldn't they? So I, I wonder if that's the blind spot with a lot of organizations. Yeah, a lot of people do it because they can get away without doing it. Mm. Uh, however, they'll never achieve their their highest potential. Yeah. Um, and, and our experience is once we demonstrate how it's done, uh, how it enables free will, how it enables innovation and this whole continuous improvement process, they see the value in it and it becomes part of their culture. Um, regardless if they're working in, in um, some kind of industry where like nuclear power or a surgical team for uh, medicine, you know, they have to have it um, every time or someone dies. Um, but regardless if you work there, it's very beneficial to, to do that. And, and once people see how powerful it is, I think they gravitate to it. Yeah, and we've talked before about <coughs> the power of debrief and um, I see so many organisations where it's all about the next task, the next project, moving on and not looking back. Whether it's the previous shift, the previous week, the previous project, what went well, how can we do it better? And I think you even said this to me in the past, that no rank debrief process. Uh, and so obviously that's come from <coughs> time in the Navy. At CatShot, you bring that into organizations as well. Right, so for the folks listening in, um, what the no rank debrief is, uh, comes from the military and, and when you're in combat or training for combat, when you're airborne and when you are briefing and debriefing, the rank comes off. So it doesn't matter if you're two or three ranks above other people in the organization, you're all treat, or in the brief or in the debrief, you treat each other similarly. It's not that you don't treat the more senior person with reference, but you, we are um, equal when it comes to taking and giving criticism. And one of the key things that we've learned over you know, the many years of Top Gun instructing and the Blue Angels and just the fleet um, aviation in general is how to brief and how to debrief in a way that takes the who out of it, that doesn't make people defensive for their mm -hmm. actions. And, yeah. and that's really where you get a great um, culture of debriefing. Is a key part to that <coughs> that the recognition for when things are done well also needs to be included? So you, sure. that yes, we can criticize freely um, and openly, but we can also um, recognize freely as well. That um, the one of the tools that we teach at Top Gun, uh, as students are going through, is you do it in the third person. You do the debrief in the third person. So you'll have a, an instructor that is the bad guy. He's going to be the bandit. And then you have the fighter who's the good guy. That's usually the student. Um, and sometimes we reverse the roles to see how the student teaches. But in general, in the debrief, we talk about the fighter did this, the bandit did this. Um, and so you take the, the who out of it a little bit, and it sounds maybe simplistic, but it works very well. Mm -hmm. uh, the other piece to that is we talk in terms of goods and others. So it's not that you did something bad, it's you did something other than good, uh, something that you could do better. So again, it's just merely a mindset of keeping this, this positive frame of mind. And by the way, one of the terms that anybody that's um, heard anything about the Blue Angel debrief is, 
when it's all said and done, um, no matter how the flight went, uh, at the end, each person goes around the room and says that they're, they're glad to be there because um, it's, a, it's a real positive way to leave the debrief. Once the debrief is done, you open up the door from the briefing room and everybody walks out with a positive mindset and they know what their specific goal is that they're gonna do next time so they can improve. And so again, keeping it on a positive is, is very important. That fits into that free will piece. You know, If you don't do that, people feel less than empowered and no longer uh, is that innovation engine and this continuous learning and improvement happening. It, it gets stifled just merely because of our egos, essentially. Yeah, great, thank you. So Rob, I'm gonna go back to the start of your life and thinking about, as a young child, a lot of people growing up think about these careers they wanna have, like they might wanna be the president, an astronaut. When you were a kid, did you wanna be a fighter pilot? Was that your thing? Yeah, I, I think it was actually, although I wasn't sure that it was attainable. Mm -hmm. And I had a couple goals you know I mentioned I was an alpine skier and I and I was pretty good um, but I also was exposed to Formula One racing uh, just because we had someone in the family that had been involved with the McLaren team back in the early 60s so I had a chance to so you've been involved visit. in can I just jump in in like high speed high adrenaline for some time right and I and I'll tell you that the first movie my dad ever took me to was the Battle of Britain and for me <laughs> it was uh, uh, and I don't know if anybody I'm dating myself but go look it up but it's all Spitfires and Hurricanes and ME 109s and things like that and it's just an amazing it just caught my attention right off the bat and so I, I learned a lot about being a fighter pilot early on and, and I thought about it um, so fast forward though I had never thought in terms of a noble calling for myself or anything like that until I had to make a big life transition and that was getting out of the Navy and that was years and years later. Mm -hmm. So uh, I didn't have the vision on how this all works back then. I just knew the kind of things that I gravitated to and I knew I was gonna either be a fighter pilot, uh, you know, an Olympic skier uh, or a Formula One race car driver and ended up being a fighter pilot. So, so what happened to the um, alpine skiing as a um, passion or a, a career? Yeah, I was good, but yeah. I wasn't nearly as good as the guys that make the Olympic team. So for me, I physically just couldn't get there. Um, the Formula One racing seemed a little bit out of my lane from the amount of money it would take to to begin to race, you know, whether it's go-karts or some kind of open wheel thing. And, and, uh, and I became an engineer, although I will tell you that I went into engineering thinking that that might be a good way to to learn about cars and, and that sort of thing, but yeah. it was really um, the opportunity struck in the States when Ronald Reagan was president and they started building the military up and, and um, uh, they opened up a lot of pilot slots and I got sucked into that uh, and I never looked back, so mm. it was good timing for me. What's the um, memory like, like that feeling when you first jumped into an F-18 memory of doing that yeah it's a great machine um, and uh, a couple of thoughts one is the performance is just eye-watering mm. um, no doubt about it um, the technology even with the early f-18s you look back now and it seems even a little bit rudimentary compared to what we're flying today but it was you know the latest and greatest back then and really um, when I I was really count on one hand a number of what we call nuggets guys that went right out of the training command right into the F-18 my timing was perfect so I was in the first cadre to do that so once I got qualified to fly the airplane no matter where we went around the country to stop and refuel and get um, you know uh, service the airplanes to, to go on to another point they'd never seen the airplane before you know yeah. and it was really kind of a heady sort of thing and, and it, uh, it, uh, it was just neat and then you know later on being in the squadron and then Top Gun instructor, uh, you know, just continued to snowball. So I, I certainly found my niche uh, yeah. back in the Navy. So you mentioned the Battle of Britain as a movie that had some influence on you when you were younger. 
Um, I would be remiss if I didn't mention the Top Gun movie. Right. When you see that, how accurate is that of Top Gun School and what that's about? Well, that's actually a great story because um, the movie came out two weeks before I went through Top Gun as a student. And we haven't talked about it here, but my call sign is ICE. So a little side story here. When um, the very first day of class, we're going to do some ground school before we start flying. And, and uh, all the students are, you know, imagine being in a classroom. All the students are sitting in their chairs. And then the, these t larger than life Top Gun instructors come in and, and line the walls. And they all introduce themselves in a very professional-like manner very intimidating almost and then the students get up and they say that you know I'm Rob Field East Coast F-18s call sign ice and the movie had been out for two weeks and of course one of the main characters mm. is the ice man and so they looked at me and I immediately had the uh, the uh, bullseye on my forehead if you will <laughs> uh, from then on but it worked out okay because they asked me to come back and be an instructor uh, but so when where, I where did ice as a call sign come from oh that's a long story you can't get into that I'll save that for another podcast. Okay, okay. another one. Okay. But uh, back to your original question. I'm sorry, I got sidetracked. But the um, when I went through as a student, it almost mirrored exactly what you saw in the movie. Now mm -hmm. we got smarter. In fact, I was part of the catalyst of changing Top Gun uh, from what you saw in the movie, where a pilot would go to Top Gun, he would get all buffed up, and then he would go back to the fleet, and we are expected him to help the other gentleman in his squadron uh, improve and get better uh, and he'd have to train him. We found over time though we could do a better job arming that pilot, the, the Top Gun patch wearer if you will because you yep. have a patch when you, you're able to once you complete the course to uh, be a good instructor so we evolved the course over time to focus more on this train the trainer mindset where we're really training the Top Gun pilot not only to be the best on the base himself we armed him with even better skills on how to be a good instructor and how to go back to his squadron and implement a very structured training program that we developed at Top Gun, but we allowed them to implement. Uh, and that's really what uh, the huge improvement that we've seen in Top Gun was this second rebirth of Top Gun, if you will, or this evolution of Top Gun as, as, uh, um, as it's matured. So. Yeah, I, I can imagine the the ripple effect by doing it like that in that evolution where more um, people's lives are being impacted, more development's happening because you're developing those instructors at the same time. Right. Um, can I ask though, with that trainer trainer, and you and I have talked about this a few times in the past about um, some trainer trainer systems unfortunately have been rolled out in different companies that I've seen and I've heard about where it's a bit like, we'll grab some people to deliver a program. If someone's listening to this um, podcast and they're thinking about doing a train-the-trainer program in some capacity, what would be a couple of tips from a Top Gun approach that would help them do that effectively? Yeah, so the key, I think, there is the selection of the individual that you, uh, that you do and then how you train them up. And then it's like a, uh, we indoctrinate the new instructors as if it's a brotherhood. There's a, uh, you know, almost a secret handshake brief, if you will, on this is how you act as a, an instructor. This is, this is what you do. This is what you don't do, um, and that and that is key. So um, everybody that becomes an instructor at Top Gun is actually hand selected for that particular job, and I just tell you the as a um, as a young pilot in the Navy, the first chance I had to go to some briefs put on by some Top Gun instructors, I was blown away by mm. their professionalism. Everything from how they looked in their uniform, how they spoke, how succinct their briefings were, and how synchronized one brief to the other one was. They obviously each had knowledge of their own specific uh, area of expertise, but they were also subject matters in the other people's expertise. and, and that cross-pollinization was so important. That was the key um, to the, the delivery. And you know, you and I have talked before about the, the poppy um, theory, I guess, if you yeah. call it, uh, where you know some people 
from a human nature standpoint, see someone that is up on a pedestal and they want to immediately knock them down. And we had a little bit of that for sure. But I would say in general, the fleet sees the Top Gun instructors as one of them and, and given a great opportunity and, and we latch on to them um, for their knowledge and their expertise, trying to, to get all of us uh, to be better. And so um, that, that pushback and not, not rolling it out correctly, I think is, is key. When we made the evolution, um, my second time at Top Gun in 1994-ish, when we went to this new model for Top Gun, uh, there was a lot of naysayers there, but once we got through the first year and a half or so and everybody had been through it, everybody thought it was so great that we've never looked back. And it's been implemented in other um, uh, areas of the Navy, the surface warfare community and so forth, have taken aspects of it and applied to, to how they train their um, individuals as well. Yeah, okay. So as a pilot um, in the Navy, if you go to the Top Gun school, how long are you there for? Um, I'm a little dated here, so I don't have the exact numbers now, but it started off when I went through, I think it was six weeks long, then it went to nine, and then we were up to like, I believe 16 weeks almost at one point here. So not only did we, um, instead of putting out a lot of large quantity of instructors, mm -hmm. we put out guys with more experience uh, training other pilots, and, and that was really the key to taking it to the next level. Yeah, okay, okay. Um, what's the key difference, I guess, with um, the training that you would do in Blue Angels versus the Top Gun School? Well, um, they have the same uh, methodology, if you will, yep. where you start at a very basic level and you master those basics as you go forward and realize both at Top Gun and the Blues, when you show up to go through to either learn how to be an air show pilot, uh, be a Blue Angel or be a Top Gun instructor, um, you're very experienced already. Mm. So we are really polishing someone that is pretty experienced. And we and what's and the key point to be made here is how important it is to work on the basics. So you almost go back to the drawing board from yourself. And you might be a great pilot, but you're not a great Top Gun instructor yet. Yeah, we'll make you one, and and so forth. So we start at the very basics and. Part of it's the flying, the other piece is to learn how to be a Blue Angel, in their case, or to learn how to be a Top Gun instructor, mm. um, in their case, and, and there's key differences. And again, that goes back to that sense I had when I was a youngster, when you see these guys, and there was something about them that said, I want to be like that. That must be, I just find that interesting around people, um, not just in the military, but you know, if you're in Top Gun or Blue Angels, you are respected because of the skill you have what you've been through, then that what comes with the name. Yet at the same time, they they've got that level of um, capability, that high performance, and also that thirst to keep on getting better. That's a, I find that really um, in, inspiring to know that. Yeah. So it's I think important to mention here, Murray, that you know I've been often uh, asked like, well, you're talking about the best of the best, you know, the, the Top Gun instructor, the Blue Angel pilot, but you know, we're we're Starbucks and or whatever you name a coffee organization that's yeah. franchised out, and, and we're we're trying to train baristas to all be the same. Mm. But it really applies. It doesn't matter what the organization is, and I think the point here is it's not what you're actually doing per se uh, when we talk about it. it's the process that you go through to be standardized and to improve these skills and the continuous improvement mindset, that's the core element uh, that's important. That's why it applies whether you're in the military or you're in some kind of private organization, uh, on yep. the economy and so forth. And it doesn't matter if you're service related or or you're making widgets on a, an assembly line, it, it all applies. Yeah. Can I say, I remember back in the 80s, Van Halen, Dreams, film clip, I had long hair in the 80s. Obviously, you never have because you're much more polished gentleman than me. But um, I remember watching that film clip just thinking, wow, those pilots are just amazing. That formation that is being held, the um, communication that must be so critical to be able to achieve what those pilots achieve. And that's what Blue Angels do, isn't it? Correct. Right. And so, again, it goes back to that process of 
learning how to be a Blue Angel. And real quickly, the, the process is you get selected to be a Blue Angel, and that process is fairly lengthy. And we could maybe that's a, a topic for another mm. podcast on on how the selection process works because that's that's important. Um, and we put a lot of effort into it. It's probably our most important uh, thing that we do. Other I than just flying. take though. I, I I would like to think or assume that key part of that selection process is some feedback or some reference checking from other people. It is. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of it is just FaceTime with them mm. uh, and so forth. But to, to give the audience here a little idea of how it works, so you get, let's say you get selected to be a Blue Angel, um, very, at the very end of the, the season before you show up, you, you join the team just before they uh, finish the season. So there's uh, three or four shows to go to, so you see how they operate. And as soon as the show season's over, half the team leaves and the other half comes in. So if we've got six pilots doing the demo, which we do, yep. three of them go and there's a, three new guys that are learning how to do it. And that's what's so great about it. But we start this process, it takes about 13 weeks mm. and we start doing the very basics and you're flying two or three times a day very focused on briefing, uh, executing, and then debriefing continuous improvement, and you have to show up prepared every day to, to go to work. Um, it's the hardest thing I've ever done yeah, uh, yeah. in the Navy or um, even in the civilian world, but it's the most rewarding process once you get through. And one of the key things I think for people to understand is that if you've got an organization, a business, you can't afford to shut down for 13 weeks, but you don't have half your team changing out every year either. Yeah. So the key is to get this process going. And just because the air show season starts doesn't mean that we're done improving. So that same process that you learned during the 13 week winter training period between um, December, early December and March when you start doing air shows, that just continues uh, throughout the year. Nothing changes, it's, it's the same thing. In, but instead of doing a lot of practices, you're doing more air shows than practices, but it's the same mindset. When you do an air show in the Blue Angels, how long would you be up in the sky for? Uh, generally about 35 minutes yep. of the shows, yep. And how much preparation time, how much briefing time for that? Yeah, an hour. An hour, and how and much in the debrief? Well, and it's an hour of briefing, but there's probably, is for each pilot, a couple hours of mental preparation and reviewing their checkpoints and, mm. and that sort of thing. Um, and then the debrief, they can go on, uh, you know, if it's a good show and, and uh, you get through it fairly quickly, maybe an hour, hour and a half. If there's a lot to talk about, we'll be in there for three hours or so, or yeah. more, yeah. I, I just think it's such an important point, the time that as a team, you invest in that setting up for success beforehand. Right. And then how did we go? As you said, what was good, what were the others? And I assume then out of that is, well, what do we do differently next time in applying that? Right. And, and from a percentage point of time, that is, it's, um, I think it's a really important point for anyone that's running an organization that's a leader around how are we creating space for those conversations outside of the execution, outside of you doing the work. Right. And, you know, don't let those time frames scare you mm. because they may. Um, but I will tell you that over time, you're gonna be very efficient at it. You, um, one of the things that we believe that we do as CatShot is give you 72 years of Blue Angel experience that you can now learn from those 72 years and, and you can short circuit your, your learning process on, on how to do some of this stuff so you're very efficient at the very beginning. And then you're gonna adapt these for your own battle rhythm, if you will, and how you operate within an organization, but absolutely have to debrief. And it doesn't matter if you're going into a negotiation, you know, a sales pitch to somebody, they need to be briefed, you execute it, and then when it's done, you debrief it. And um, I think we see organizations that do that. Um, you know, obviously we're working with power companies here in Australia. Um, it's big into the medical, uh, yep. especially the, the surgery world um, and health industry and so forth. Uh, obviously the airlines and everybody has their method of doing something very similar. Yeah, okay. Um, so CatShot, you explained to me before, is a 
Is that the launch or the capture of when you went in aircraft carrier? It stands, it's a Navy uh, fighter pilot slang term for catapult shot. So this is uh, when they hook up your airplane on a flight deck, you're full of missiles and fuel, mm -hmm. and you get catapulted off the ship to go fly. So from zero to 150 miles an hour and you know about 1,000 feet or less. So, so what, if we were to put a time frame on that to get to that speed, you know, top speed? About a second and a half, maybe something like yeah, that. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty fast. Brilliant. So, uh, for anyone listening that hasn't been up in a plane or in a situation where they're pulling a lot of G's, what does that feel like to the body? Uh, just everything's heavy. Yeah. Yeah. And um, it uh, it once you get over, you everybody has a sitting um, G tolerance. I happen to have a very high one, so I can pull about four and a half to 4.6 Gs just sitting there without doing any maneuver, um, any straining maneuvers mm -hmm. um, before I start having my eyesight collapse. Um, but most people are somewhere in the three and a half to four. So beyond that, the way you have to, if you're going to pull eight Gs, you have to pump your blood back up into your head or better yet you try and not let it even get down into your extremities into your limbs so we do these g-straining straining maneuvers where you are um, tightening your glutes and your thighs and and uh, your, your whole legs and, and your torso um, and then we have a g-suit that helps with that as well where it mm -hmm. squeezes the g-suit though believe it or not only gives you about a g g and a half advantage so most of it is just your physical yeah, tensing so. your body to stop the blood from flowing where it shouldn't be so yeah, it yeah, uh, yeah. it'll um, when you are doing a dogfight mm -hmm. uh, and you're doing multiple uh, turns, you know, uh, you are sustaining very high G's for long periods of time. It can be very very tiring. So most fighter pilots are good weightlifters, and they're also pretty aerobically uh, yeah. inclined as well. I, I can imagine then at that high level of performance, you've also got to look after your body itself. So um, the partying lifestyle which maybe some people think goes with it doesn't really go with it does it <laughs> well when you're young you can do a lot we'll just oh, put it that yeah, way and learn yeah. 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 yeah it's not for everybody though no I sure. can imagine yeah okay um, technology uh, I actually listened to a podcast recently with Joe Rogan was chatting with Elon Musk just around AI and the future and what's going on and um I'd love to get your perspective, what you think's going on with technology and aircraft and things like that. And um, I just, I, I, just the evolution of things like drones and what do you see out there and what you can buy in the shops. But I mean, it's amazing to think how fast it's all happening. I think where it, uh, the way the aviation technology is going, we haven't realized the full potential. Um, the way we're using them is not keeping up with the technology. And I'll give you an example. Why should we have airline pilots fly airplanes when you can have an unmanned system probably do it better? So is that and, uh, military and commercial, you're thinking? Yeah. yeah. So I'll give you an example. Yeah. Um, and I'll tell you why we don't. Mm. And that is you want to have, you know, it's like putting a uh, parachute on the pilots in the front of the airliner, but the passengers don't get one, right? This sort of <laughs> doesn't set a good um, example. However, I, I do believe we'll get there someday. Mm -hmm. The um, uh, I wonder how many people, if we asked them, would you hop on a commercial plane if it was being uh, flown by, an, like it was an unmanned aircraft? Right. I wonder how many people would say yes or no to that. Well, that's, I guess that's the mindset, isn't it? You jump on yeah. trolleys all the time that are run by a computer. Yeah, yeah, true. Yeah. They get you from point A to point B. Now, mm. if something goes wrong, they usually just stop and you get out. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's a little different when it comes to aviation. But the, from day in and day out, as long as you have connectivity, the unmanned systems are incredible. Where you have a challenge is when you lose connectivity for some reason, mm. something goes wrong, um, and now you need to have a manual backup. And that's, that's really where we are here. You put enough money into it, and they'll have redundant systems that will make 
the uh, the likelihood of something like that happened very low and they have contingency plans you if you lose communication then you're going to orbit for an hour and then you're going to go to a point by the airport, you're going to do a left turn, a right turn to identify yourself, then you're going to go ahead and land or something along those lines. And, and we have some of that contingency planning already. Um, but I think a lot of it is, you know, there's a lot more that we could be doing with this new technology right now, but it's going to take a while for people's psyche to catch up with mm -hmm. that. Yeah, gotcha. I, I was having a chat to you earlier today just about our s soft, squishy human bodies and the limitations that they probably bring to an aircraft. So in a military sense, you take them out, um, in a way it sort of just opens up the boundaries about what's possible, doesn't it? Sure, yeah. I mean, you've got, uh, right now, we our air-to-air missiles are pulling up words of 50 Gs or wow. greater. Um, so, but you couldn't, you know, as a pilot, most, uh, I think, you know, our limit's gonna be somewhere in the eight to 10 mm. Gs sustained, much over that most folks are not going to be able to maintain consciousness, even with some of the newer uh, suits that they have and, and pressured uh, breathing devices and so forth. So, uh, but the key problem is right now, um, when you, in terms of warfare, is if you ever lose connectivity with that system, um, it either has to go into a lost communication mode where it's a contingency plan, it goes in orbits or it, it returns to base or so forth, but it, if you're going to drop ordnance on a target, it's not going to continue on to the target to drop that ordnance most likely because if something changes, you've got to have a human on the loop, a decision maker to say that it's okay to, to drop it. So, yeah, gotcha. and so we're not we're not quite there yet. No, okay, gotcha, I understand. And can I just go back to something you said earlier around this, um, I guess this perspective or this, um, approach around catch shot as an organization that you do when you work with other companies about exist to win. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by that? It means continuous improvement. Uh, it means leaving nothing on the table. And, and we believe that there's really three types of organizations that you want to combine into one. It's this highly motivated organization, highly innovative, highly reliable and if you look at all the organizations doesn't matter whether it's in the military or in the civilian civilian world when they're successful they have elements of all three and the culture that they have is in such a manner that it naturally balances those three uh, and optimizes them and that's really what we shoot for at CatShot and that's what we bring to the table and, and what we're bringing really is uh, not only our 72 years of Blue Angel experience and the uh, you know, 50 some years of Top Gun experience. We're not just doing that, we've been out in the uh, private sector long enough to now mm -hmm. we see how this works and how it, what we are talking about there actually relates to civilian organizations and so forth. And, and really, it's more of just convincing people that it's gonna work uh, better. Yep. Regardless, uh, it really doesn't matter uh, what type of organization it is. It could be a sports, it could be making widgets and so forth. Like that's, that's really what we do. But we're, our goal is to bring that experience so um, once an organization ha makes the decision that they want to move forward and, and change their current paradigm, and that's what we do, we change their current paradigm and make, to make them uh, faster, more efficient, you know, you name it, better performing, that we give them the tools to do that rather quickly. Okay. If I'm a leader in of a team that makes widgets and I'm listening to this today, what's one or two tips that you could pass on to help me improve the way my team works? Yeah, well, I think it's the, it goes back to the performance triad. Let's first of all start from the big picture and what is your noble calling? What, what is your passion? What can people that are on that line they're producing those widgets, whether they're the engineers or the guys out on the line actually baking them and so forth. What is the big vision that, that gives them passion to come in and work every day? Then there's the continuous improvement piece. That's the highly innovative organization elements, uh, the free will, if you will. What are the processes that we do that enable people to uh, try things? And, and it's okay to fail. And we fail in a uh, 
low-risk manner, if you will. So we think about it and we talk about it uh, very carefully before we go forward. Use that innovation engine uh, that you and I have talked about. Again, another topic for a different podcast on uh, how we can raise the collective intelligence of, of the entire organization um, and how we can be more innovative than that. And then it's really um, taking the very basics of briefing, executing, and debriefing and infusing that into what we do every day. And that's where you're going to see immediate results. And it sounds tedious, but it's just the opposite. Once people see how it works, mm. um, it becomes part of the culture and they actually enjoy doing it. Yeah, okay. So to wrap us up today, I've got three last questions and something to say. Uh, and my first question is you talk about a noble calling. What's your noble calling? Mine's related around my family. Yeah. Yep. So, uh, I, you know, I like to feel like I want to do something positive for, for mankind and, and my country. And I think the most important thing for me to do is to, uh, um, if I can be on my deathbed and I've got my children mm -hmm. nearby or at least talking to them and, and uh, they are uh, happy, successful, then I've been a good dad. And being a good dad is, is probably my Second one is this is the Inspired Energy podcast and Inspired Energy is something that I like to get the perspective of different people when they hear that, what do they think it means? So what do you think that means? To me, it sounds like a noble calling and mm -hmm. a passion and how to find that and apply it. Thank you. I like that. I'm gonna, uh, I think that's a, you're right. It's a good link between that energy when you feel like I'm inspired to do something and that's that, that motivation, that, that calling I have inside of me, isn't it? Yeah. Um, if someone wants to find out more about Rockfield and CatShot, where should they go? Where's the best place to go? You should just go to the website, yep. uh, www.catshotgroup.com. C-A-T-S-H-O-T-G-R-O-U-P.com. Beautiful, thank you. Uh, and just to wrap us up, I wanted to wrap up with acknowledging you. Uh, your wealth of knowledge, experience, and um, insights today were just absolutely awesome. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. I um, really value connecting with you earlier this year and the friendship we've developed, and I look up to you immensely, and the chance to um, learn from you, I really appreciate. A good friend of mine, Sam Cawthon, <coughs> he says, proximity is power. Awesome. So thanks everyone for listening. Um, please uh, share and make any comments. And um, as Rob said, we'll hopefully have him on again to talk about some future topics. Thanks a lot.